delightful to see you all, and if you're visiting, I really trust that you are feeling at home. And uh, we've been doing a series on an amazing book, Colossians. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to have a look again today at Colossians. Uh, for those of you that have been in the church for a while, just to kind of f give a framework, you'll remember that we studied, <coughs> studied Galatians. Galatians really is a book about what it means to be saved, that we're saved by grace through faith. And so the technical word for that is soteriology, what it means to be saved. You'll remember also that we spoke out of Ephesians. We did a series out of Ephesians um, on how the church works, and that's called the technical word, ecclesiology, how the church works together, how, how we relate to each other. And now this book here is, uh, works with those other two books. Colossians is a book about Christ. It's about Christology. That's the technical word. How we can understand Jesus in all of His beauty and magnificence and glory. All right? And then there's another book, if you want to kind of go ahead of where we're going to be heading, if you'd like to start reading the book of Philemon or Philemon. Philemon is a pastoral book. How do we get on with each other? So those four books work together, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. And so over the course of this year, we're going to be looking more closely at Colossians, obviously, and then we're going to move on, and uh, the preaching team is going to preach through Philemon as well. But I... The last three weeks, I've kind of been doing an introduction uh, to land at this place where we're going to start looking for the next two weeks. This absolutely incredible portion of the New Testament, this is the high point in all of the New Testament speaking about Jesus. In terms of Christology, understanding who Christ is, this is the high point of the entire New Testament. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And some people think this was a song. Some people think this was a hymn that Paul put in. And uh, you'll, you, when we start reading it in the next couple of weeks, you'll see something of the poetry of it, how it works together. And it's incredibly rich in describing to us the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one that we sung with all of our hearts too this morning. Amen? No, you didn't sing with all of your heart? I thought you did. I could hear everyone singing with all of their hearts. That's absolutely delightful, right? And so that's why we worship. We don't just worship because we like singing. We worship because we have a reason to sing. There is a king of the universe who's reached into our lives and transformed our hearts and forgiven us our history and given us a whole new future. And that is why we sing. We've got something to sing about. So I would encourage you to sing. <laughs> Whether you sing in tune or not is irrelevant. Just sing. And here is this magnificent, magnificent portion of Colossians. And just to remind you, uh, you can go to the map. That's cool. Just to remind you of where um, Colossia was, it's in modern-day Asia Minor, um, Turkey, between Tarsus and Ephesus. Remember, Epaphras was the one who went from Ephesus, and he planted this church in Colossia. And now he's gone to Paul. At the end of his life, Paul is in jail in Rome. And Paul, he's come to, to, to Paul to say, there's some problems in the church. Can you help us? And so Paul writes this letter back to address the people in the Colossian church. And here's this magnificent portion in the first, uh, second half of Colossians chapter 1. It says, verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now this magnificent hymn or poem or whatever it is. He is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from amongst the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of His cross. It is magnificent. You two sang that song, Magnificent. Well, this is even more magnificent. This is, this is the most magnificent portion in the New Testament describing who Christ is. So, Jesus, I pray that you'd help me by your Spirit to preach and encourage and lift up hearts and eyes that truly we would see you in all of your magnificence, all of your glory, in a way that would transform us from the inside, that we might live in a way that fully pleases you in every area of our life. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Everyone says, Amen. So last week I spoke to you about the prayer that Paul prays for the Colossian church in the first half of this chapter. And he asks, he says, I want you to seek spiritual wisdom. I want you to seek understanding and strength. And then he says, I want you to have very practical wisdom from heaven, which is to apply all of the spiritual knowledge in how you live. And so it's very practical. And he says, he uses this phrase, that they are to walk in a way that is fully pleasing to God and worthy of walking after Jesus. Those are the kind of phrases he uses. And I said to you, that's the AB, he's encouraging us in the ABC of being a disciple of Jesus. That we fully please Him in every area of our life, in, in integrity in our, in our workplaces, in our sexual ethic, how, how we conduct ourselves sexually, in prayer, in our personal fellowship with Him, in our giving, in our, our time, in everything of who we are, that we are to fully please Him as disciples of Jesus. And so I did say to you that it's quite possible to believe in Jesus and not to fully please Him. Uh, if we don't give ourselves to the things that He wants to give ourselves to. And I said to you, I was amazed that in the UK, 25 million people, are, are, are over 18, have signed up to Pornhub. 25 million people. You can go read it for yourself. Uh, my, my point is that all of us need to fully please God in all of our lives, in every area of our lives. Not just a little. Not just compromise a little bit here and a little bit there. No, we fully please Him as disciples. What areas of your life do you still need to fully please Him in? I don't accuse you in any way, because I know my own weakness. But I'm saying to you, we need to walk as disciples of the King. Disciples, fully pleasing Him. So what areas of your life do you still need to give to Him and fully please Him? And ultimately, I said, Paul encourages the church like this, because he says, my friends, my dear friends, there is an inheritance for you. All of this stuff, why I'm asking you to pray like this and to ask this for yourself and others, is because you have an inheritance in the saints of light that God wants you to share in. And I talked about our inheritance, that every single one of us has a portion, a share in the internal inheritance set apart for us in heaven. And Paul is saying, that's why I want you to live like this. That's why I want you to pray for these things. That's why I want you to strengthen yourself and strengthen others, because there's an inheritance for you here on earth and in heaven that you are qualified to go 
go after. All of us are qualified that believe in Jesus for this incredible inheritance that we have in light. That's what Paul says. And now he focuses in the first verse that we read today, he focuses quite clearly and exactly on what has qualified you and I to go after this inheritance. In verse 13 he simply says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light of His beloved Son, speaking of Jesus, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And so... What enables the Colossians to go after their inheritance is the same thing that qualifies you and I as believers in Jesus to go after our inheritance. There's a radical transfer that has happened in our lives that has already taken place and has transferred us from one kingdom into another kingdom. Paul says the old kingdom into the new kingdom. And this transfer has resulted in an incredible blessing in your life and in my life. So, I have said this before, but I really want to summarize this so we can launch into this glorious passage over the next couple of weeks, fully being introduced to the themes that Paul is trying to get us to consider. So the first thing I'd like us to think about this morning is the old kingdom. Consider, think for a moment about the old kingdom. Paul says, all of us, before we knew Christ, were under the authority of darkness, it was gloomy. It was incredibly depressing. Even when we were excited by worldly things and worldly pleasures of living, Paul says, even in that point when you were enjoying all of the stuff of the world, you were still in darkness and you didn't even know it. He says this was true for all of us. The Scripture uses this kind of language. It says we were spiritually blind. We were spiritually dead. We were given over to a kingdom of sin that ruled over our lives without us even knowing it. That law, that rule, condemned every one of us to die. Death was our destiny. This is what Paul says. Death is our destiny, and that's where we were headed. And the devil kept us captive quite easily. And so that's why the Bible uses, us, uh, uses language like we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And Paul says, he uses this language. He says, we walked in the ways of the world and were ruled by the powers of the princes of the air. And that's the kind of language, language that Paul used. And again, we, we were ruled by powers and principalities and we didn't even know it. That's Paul's point. And so even when we were at our very best and doing our very best morally, to please ourselves in the way that we thought we should live, Paul says, even then, we, we, we were dead in our sin. And under the wrath of God, in the sense of, God is not angry with people, God is angry with sin. And He cannot tolerate sin because He is holy. And wherever there is sin in our lives, His anger is pointed towards that, and He says, that thing I want you to change by the power of the Spirit. This is what Paul says the old kingdom was like. But then, consider the new kingdom. It's exactly the opposite of everything I've just described to you. Instead of being ruled by sin, Paul says that in a new way, we are enslaved, we have become slaves, willingly, uh, happily, to righteousness. That's the language Paul uses. Instead of being dead, we are now alive by the power of the Spirit, and we willingly, happily have enslaved ourselves, have become slave to a new master. And the new master that we've become enslaved to is the righteousness of Christ. Happily submitted ourselves to the righteousness of Christ. Are you with me? 
And so he says, we've died to the law, and we've become alive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And best of all is that we've come to know a person, a person called Jesus, and we live in his kingdom, the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus. We live in his kingdom. And so we do now experience a new reign in our lives, a new kingdom in our lives. It's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a severe reign. It's not an angry reign. It's not a harsh reign. It's not a reign of condemnation. It's a reign of graciousness, kindness, peace, joy, self-control by the power of the Spirit reigning in us because we are in the beloved Son's kingdom, the Father's Son and His kingdom. Are you with me? That is the new that we are in. And so Paul says a radical thing. He says, even death itself does not apply anymore. We have died to death. You and I will never die. Do you believe that? My dad was, was diagnosed with dementia this, dementia this week. He's dying. My mom passed away from cancer many years ago. Her body's dust. It's gone. But the truth of what we believe as Christians is even though this body dies and goes to dust, we do not die. We live eternally because there's a new kingdom we are part of. By grace, the kingdom of the beloved Son who has loved us with an eternal love and transformed us out of darkness, out of death, into His kingdom of light. Do you believe it, my friends? This is the good news. This is the gospel. We are released from death Forever. I want to encourage you that when that moment comes for you, you don't have to have any fear. All of us will pass from one degree of glory to another. We will go without fear because we, it's not really death. It's just our body is turning to dust. But Jesus, His arms are already open to welcome us. Come on now. You don't have to fear death. None of you. I don't have to. Where death is your sting. We don't have to fear it. Why? Because there's no death for you. There's no death for me. And for everyone who's in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. That's why it's called good news. Consider the transfer that has taken place. Consider the old kingdom. Consider the new kingdom. Consider, thirdly, the nature of the transfer that has taken place. And it's very important that you and I exactly understand what has happened to us. And that's why I'm laboring it a bit. Paul does not say that we are trying to get into the new kingdom. Paul does not say one day you will get into the kingdom. He does not say more and more you are getting yourself into the kingdom. He says he has, past tense, transferred us. We have already been transferred. It has already happened. It has been done. It is an accomplished fact. If you believe by faith in Jesus Christ, you are part of the new kingdom. Done. Forever. Let me use an illustration from my own life. I was not born here, as you know from my accent. I was born in Cape Town in South Africa. I left South Africa nearly 18 years ago, and I became a citizen of the United Kingdom. I have a new passport. The old is gone. I don't use it anymore. It's done and dusted. I am not a citizen of South Africa anymore. I am a citizen of the UK. It is done. It, regardless of what people say about my accent, by law, I am a citizen of a new kingdom. The UK. And this is what Paul is trying to say to us about the old and the new kingdom. It is a fact 
It is a fact that you are not part of the old anymore, and you are part of the new. You still might have some habits from the old kingdom, but that does not put you back into the old kingdom. It doesn't matter that I speak with a South African accent. I am not a citizen of South Africa. I am a citizen of a new kingdom, the United Kingdom. You might still fall in sin. It doesn't mean that you go back to the old kingdom. It means there's still some things that need to trans be transformed in your life by the power of the Spirit. There are some habits that still need to die, but you are still in the kingdom, the new kingdom, eternally secure in Christ. You might have some ups and downs in the new kingdom. But it doesn't throw you back into the old. You just have some ups and downs. You're still in the new kingdom. It might take time for you to adjust to the new kingdom. It's taken me time to understand some things culturally that happened in the UK that I didn't understand before. But that doesn't mean that my citizenship changes. <laughs> my citizenship is secure eternally, legally. My position is always secure. I am a citizen of this nation. Are you with me? Do you hear what I'm trying to say? It's the same thing that Paul is saying. The old is gone. You are in the new. Whether you feel like you're in the new, whether you, there are some old habits that still plague you from the old, you are in the new kingdom of light of the beloved Son. Let the Holy Spirit transform you by His power. And Paul says, that's the thing that qualifies you to go after your inheritance. You have been transferred along with every other Christian, into the realm of God's grace, God's kindness, the rule of His beloved Son. So, there's a great blessing for you and I. How am I doing, Josh? Is it right? <laughs> I'm always nervous to give a, a, a PowerPoint because I'm always all over the place anyway, so it's like very hard for the guy doing the PowerPoint to follow me. But he has the first great blessing of being in the new kingdom. Paul says, we have redemption from our sins. Why do you think Paul only mentions forgiveness and redemption from sins here? It's because it's really the first blessing. And there are many, many other blessings that are available to us about being in the kingdom, the new kingdom of Jesus' love. But this is the first one, and it's the one that means the most. Out of this, everything else flows. When we put our trust in Jesus, we put us and we step into His new kingdom of grace. Can I say this? And I want you to repeat after me. I'm not trying to teach, treat you like children, but so it can sink into your heart. Can you say, all of my sins have been forgiven? Man, can you think about that for your life? Everything that embarrasses you, everything that you wish you'd never done, everything that you think, oh, if people knew that, they would just look at me in a different way. All of that stuff has been forgiven. It is gone. No more. No more naming and shaming. No more exposing of people's sexual stuff that they did many years ago and they're thoroughly embarrassed about. None of that stuff in the kingdom. It's all gone, forgiven, washed away. Are you with me? This is what it means to be in a new kingdom. Don't let those things come back and haunt you and plague your mind. You are forgiven. They are as far as from the east as from the west in your life. You are washed. You are transformed. Your sins have might have been like scarlet. They are white as snow. This is good news. And 
And so Paul uses the language of redemption. It means, redemption is a simple word. It simply means that we are set free from slavery and bondage by the paying of a price. That's why he uses the word redemption. You with me? He says, You've, the price has been paid. It's been done. It's happened. You are free in Christ Jesus. And then after he said this, he can't help but, but launch into this amazing song of praise about the, the greatness of Jesus and who he is, the glory of Jesus. And I'm trying to land on, I can't land on this week. So next week we're going to look at this amazing portion. But I just want to say, uh, to complete this introduction, just to remind you why Paul is saying this to the Colossian church. Remember, in uh, chapter 2, I've already mentioned this, he talks about what is a heresy in this church. And he's trying to address, his basic idea of addressing this is to address this heresy that's in the Colossian church. And so here he kind of, he focuses their attention on Jesus as the all-sufficient Savior, the ruler over all, the Lord over all, the fount of every treasure, every blessing. And uh, I just want to remind you, before we get into that, what this Colossian heresy was, all right? Just so you've got it sorted in your mind. And we're not, it's very hard to know exactly what it was. But from the, 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 the first three chapters, we've got some pretty good ideas what, what Paul was up against. This kind of teaching in this church, firstly, admired philosophy. You can go to that, uh, Josh. It admired philosophy. When Paul says in chapter 2, we're going to get there. That's the last point, Josh. <laughs> I knew this would happen. Okay. They admired philosophy, all right? When Paul says in, in, in chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one brings you into captivity through philosophy and empty deceit, he's referring to what is going on in the church in Colossia. What is philosophy? What does it try and do? Well, simply, philosophy tries to find truth in this world, but without God's help, without God's word. It's using your mind, but without God's help to try and answer some of the biggest questions of life. And so I would imagine some of these Colossian philosophers were probably asking questions like, where does evil come from? How can we understand suffering? All these kind of things that people ask over and over again. And those are great questions and they need to be answered, but you cannot answer them simply with philosophy. That is Paul's point. It's trying to answer these big questions without even asking God what he thinks. We just use our minds apart from God. No, our minds are there to serve God and to understand Him and to ask for more revelation. And so Paul says, uh, and by the way, I'm reading some philosophy at the moment, so I'm not, not um, lock, knocking academics. I'm not at all. We must love God with our minds. But I am saying this, that it's not apart from God. We don't kind of think apart from God. God is in our thinking. He's in our hearts. He's in our lives. He transforms everything. Are you with me? And so we can't, so philosophy is not going to save you. It didn't help the, the Colossian Christians. It won't help you and it won't help me. So first, these people admired philosophy. Second, they admired tradition. We know this also from verse 8 where Paul says, uh, the philosophy of empty deceit according to human tradition. What does he mean by tradition? Well, simply, it's the influence of your background. It's the influence of your nationality. It's the influence of perhaps the denomination that you've come from or increasingly in this world, no, no religious affiliation whatsoever. 
And all of those things have an uh, uh, effect on how you see the world, how you think, and how you act. And Paul says those things are empty deceit. That's the language that he uses. And we, we need to be aware of this because every single one of us tend to think and behave according to what we did in our family or our tribe or our nation or our background or our religious denomination and whatever circle we've come from, all of those things have an influence on how we think. And that's exactly what um, part of the problem was in Colossae that Paul is addressing. He's challenging it. And I think, we'll have a look in, in chapter 2, but I think it had something to do with Jewish tradition. Because why do I say that? Well, we'll see later that Paul mentions circumcision in verse 11 of chapter 2. He, he, he mentions the practice of keeping holy days. It's very important to Jewish people to keep holy days. And so I think he's probably talking about some kind of uh, Jewish tradition that was still part of the church. And Paul was saying, actually, those things are empty. Jesus is, is sufficient. He's the fullness of all things. Don't need to worry about that stuff. Don't need to worry about philosophy. Just using your mind to try and understand things apart from God. Ask God to be part of your thinking. Ask Jesus to transform you from the inside and change your thinking. Don't worry about tradition. Thirdly, they had a particular tradition about, and doctrine about angels. Uh, it seems that, uh, and again, we'll look at this in this uh, ongoing chapters, but just to give you a, a heads up of, of where I'm going with this, it seems that the, the, the Colossians believed that angels helped God in creation. The, 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 many scholars think this, there was a Jewish mysticism that had influenced the church in Colossia, that um, they knew that uh, the angels had brought the law, Acts 7, Galatians 3.19, to Moses. That's what the Scripture says. And so they thought that the law belonged to the angels. And uh, I'll explore this a little bit more in the future. But what they seem to then think about Jesus is that He wasn't the fullness of God. He was, that, that the fullness of God was somehow shared with angelic beings. And uh, that's why Paul says in verse 119, In Him, in Christ, is the fullness of God, and the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. He's trying to get them to understand it's not some of God's fullness in the angels and some of God's fullness somewhere else. No, the fullness of God is in Christ. All of who God is, the God of the universe, the God who created everything magnificently, all of the fullness of God is in the person of Jesus. Thank you, talks. <laughs> that is good news, or else we're in trouble. And so it seems like the Colossians were happy to have Jesus as one of the super angels. You know, but, but one of the angels, not, not fully God. Kind of, he's a cool guy. He's perhaps a mega angel, super angel, but he's, he's, he's not the fullness of God. That kind of crept into the church and into its thinking. And so we know that. We'll explore that from the second chapter onwards. And clearly Paul does not accept that. Clearly Paul says that's philosophy and speculation. And he says Jesus is above angels. He's above all created things. He has the fullness of God's divine nature in him. And the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And we too, by faith, are in Christ, in the fullness of God. That should wow you. <laughs> it should. You know... Jesus, can you imagine how much God loves Jesus as his son? He, he, he loves him completely, doesn't he? The same love that, Jesus, that God has for his son Jesus, he has for you and he has for me. 
When I thought about it this week, I was overwhelmed. That's the truth of God's Word. The same love that God the Father has for Jesus the Son, He has for every single person that is in Him by faith. It is absolutely magnificent in every way. Think about it. Dwell on it. Let God enlarge your heart as you understand His love for you. Fourth, these guys seem to have their own particular teaching about humility, uh, asceticism. Uh, some translations in verse 19 of chapter 2 talk about self-abasement. Uh, Paul says there are people who insist on self-abasement. It seems that these Colossians, the, the guys that were in this church, wanted their converts to humiliate themselves in some way. Uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with humility, but there can be some, some, kind of, some kinds of religious teachers that demand humility from their followers. They demand submission. I'm the leader. You submit to me. And that's very extreme. That's not biblical. And something like that was going on in the Colossian church. And Paul addresses it strongly and says, uh-uh, guys, you focused on the wrong thing. It's not about that. It's about Jesus, the all-sufficient Savior, the, the one who's above all. Amen? Fifth, I'm not going to look at this in detail because we don't have time and it's part of the series coming up. It seemed that they also wanted to encourage special experiences of having visions. As you kind of bought into their teaching, you needed to have special spiritual visions and revelations. So we'll say more about that as we go forward. And sixth, lastly, I've said this before in my introduction, but it seems that there was this kind of confusion, this mishmash of ideas taken from various places that had begun to influence the church. So there were some Jewish ideas, as I've said already. There were some ideas from tradition. There were some philosophical ideas that had influenced the church. There were some pagan ideas. They were all mixed together. And so it seems that this church had become confused, and, and, and there was this complicated mix of popular religious ideas, plus some ideas taken from Judaism. So we might not be able to say exactly what the Colossian heresy was, but it certainly involved those things. And you might say, oh, and that's all very complicated, and what does it mean for me as a Christian today? Well, I want to say to you, it is complicated being a Christian, all right? It's very complicated. And this letter should help us to see that. It's very complicated. The truth is that many of those things that I've mentioned to you this morning and over the last three weeks are still around in churches today. So it should get us to think a little bit about God's church. How do we understand God's church? Do, are, are they cults or are they churches? Well, I'm not going to answer that right now, but I'm asking you to think about it. Because certainly in the world, I see religious groups that do try and uh, mix philosophy and the Bible together. Some ideas come from God's Word, some don't. It's also true that there are some churches that are full of tradition. Full of tradition. There are other churches that have weird teachings. If it's not about angels, it's about some other stuff. Some preachers overdo teaching about submission. Some preachers overdo fasting and physical discipline and prayer. You've got to fast for weeks on end. What is that about? Is it trying to prove that we're kind of some like really holy people? If God calls you to fast for three weeks, go for it. Absolutely. But don't put that on everyone else, all right? <laughs> When I see fasting in the Bible, it was only in times of, crit of critical national times that they fasted like that. Is it good to fast? Absolutely. Do you want, if you need to fast weekly, absolutely go for it. 
but that time is for you to connect with your Father. It's not kind of religious kind of kudos, points that we score with God the longer we fast. Paul says, that's weird. Don't do that stuff. I don't have any other friends left now. Paul says also, don't get into weird visions. Don't get into weird visions. Everything needs to be weighed carefully. I put it to you that the church is often too impressed with seemingly spectacular experiences that can easily mislead. And all of these things gain traction in the modern church when we don't take our ideas straight from the straightforward exposition of Scripture and we take our ideas from what sounds impressive. And there are lots of people in the world who sound impressive and teach things that sound impressive, but when you get down to it and you look, does this come from the Scripture? It has got nothing to do with the Scripture whatsoever. And the church rushes after this idea and that idea and this thing and that thing to get people in and get people on the seats, and it doesn't help at all. It's not helping people to become disciples of the King, Jesus And so that's why I put it to you as I finish this morning. This book of Colossians is up to date as tomorrow's newspaper in terms of how people think. <laughs> it's up to date. You'll read some stuff in the Sunday Times today, and it will be reflected in what Paul said to the Colossian church. Don't think like that. Allow God to transform your mind by the power of the living Christ. And so we're going to look at this beautiful Beautiful elevation of Jesus as the supreme ruler of all next week. And I just wanted to land on that today. And as we conclude, we will all do well to bear this in mind. We don't need great philosophy or tradition or weird experiences or visions. We simply need to know what it means to eat and drink upon the living Christ. That's what Paul says. That's what Jesus says. Unless you eat and drink of me, you will not know your eternal future. We need to live upon the fullness of the deity that is Christ, that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is sufficient. He is enough. Christ is enough for me. I trust that Christ is enough for you as you live your life. Many things will come and tempt you to think like this. Go after that. It's a good idea. Jesus is the all-sufficient, glorious Savior who delivers, redeems, heals, sets free, gives you a hope, gives you a future. Christ is sufficient. If you don't, you're not convinced of that, I want to trust by faith. But when we finish this series, you will be convinced. I can't argue into the kingdom. I can't argue into thinking like this. But I can pray that God would give you revelation by the power of His Spirit that would transform your life from the inside out. That would give you a hope, would give you a future give you a destiny and a hope and a calling. Amen?